Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 10, verses 24 through 48. Our verses of focus, verses 34 through 43, looking at Peter's sermon today. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to, fest- and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To-, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized In the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. 
And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So this is part four in Acts chapter 10, this set of events surrounding Cornelius and Peter. We've looked at Cornelius' vision closely, how the angel came and spoke to him. We've learned what a a godly man Cornelius was as the Lord was drawing this Gentile, this Roman centurion to him. We saw Peter's vision and how the Lord destroyed the is working to destroy the partiality in Peter's mind. This false way of understanding Judaism that led to them having a condescending and mistaken attitude towards the Gentiles. We saw how Peter and Cornelius met and the way the Lord had worked in Cornelius to bring all these people to his home, not just his own household, but his close friends and his family members even outside of his household to come and be those who would listen to Peter's sermon. And so today, we come to listen to Peter's sermon and see the content of what he preached in this first Gentile discourse. It's a beautiful thing. And next week, we're going to look at the conversion of the first Gentiles and what it looked like, what God did as a result of the preaching of the Word and them coming to faith in the Gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. This sermon is described by a commentary, I think, accurately. It's the final missionary speech of Peter in Acts, and it formulates the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentile sympathizers with Judaism. So this shows the overall, the overarching approach that would be taken to preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to Gentiles who are being drawn to Christ. And we'll see many important ideas in today's sermon. We bumped into some of them already, such as partiality. And by God's grace, we'll be able to examine our own hearts and see ways that we may be not like God in this way and judgmental towards others, maybe even within our own family members, not treating them with the same level of love and respect that God does and that He calls us to towards all people. We'll see the concept of peace with God and think that through as really an overarching description of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly important for every human being, but especially for the Gentiles who were outside, uh, not allowed to draw near to the temple. No way to approach close to God. Jesus Christ changes that for all of them and shows how all of the Old Testament actions were just pointing to Jesus. And Peter makes this clear in his sermon, pointing them back, as we saw in the catechism today, to not only the patriarchs and the prophets, but even back to the garden itself. We'll see the simplicity of evangelism, brothers and sisters, and the power of God. It is not by persuasive words that we bring people to Jesus. We speak of him. And God may in his kindness pour out his spirit and bring individuals to understand his glory. It's not up to us. And this should bring you great comfort. It should encourage you as we see the simplicity of the message preached by Peter. We'll see Peter's dependence upon the Holy Spirit and may God lead us to be the same way and um, be able to speak with the same kind of boldness 
and confidence and let, and let God do the work. And that brings uh, humility and uh, a lack of pressure uh, when we present the message of the gospel. We'll see, uh, again, this uh, key idea that we've been delivered from demonic elements. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is filled up with things that we cannot see, invisible things within ourselves, within others. Our souls are invisible, and God is invisible, and Christ is currently invisible in heaven, and there are demonic elements, these fallen angels, that fight against us, and that are more powerful than any human being. The deceptive abilities of Satan and his minions are beyond anything we can ever deal with. And even as Christians, we would be deceived were it not for God's power at work in us. And so Jesus Christ has destroyed all the works of the devil. And this should continue to give us great confidence as we go forth. We'll see that Jesus is lifted up as Christ, as Lord, and as judge. Jesus Christ is lifted up as both Lord and judge in this text. And this brings to us the concepts of repentance and remission of sins. Once again, while remission is, excuse me, while repentance is not directly referenced in this text, it is strongly implied. When the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ comes before the eyes of these Gentiles and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, we have to conclude that they repented at that time of their sins. And did indeed look to Jesus Christ, as Peter does say, trusting in him for the remission of sins so that at the day of judgment, the judge would find them not guilty. And these are the key points that we'll see brought before our eyes today. And I hope that it will encourage us and cause us all to grow up in Christ together. As we've said before, this whole scene, this whole section in chapter 10 is the book's turning point. As from here, the gospel will fan out in all directions to people across a vast array of geographical regions, something Paul's three missionary journeys will underscore. And it really is an important question for every individual, particularly young people, young adults coming up. Are you called to overseas missionary work? Are you called to leave your family and to go and to live and to transplant yourself into another culture? to participate, to devote your life's work to overseas missionary work. This is a question I believe every Christian is called to answer. I'm I'm not saying every Christian is called to this, but this is a global mission that we're called to. And some Christians are called to go. Some Christians are called to go. And each, each of you, I believe each of us along the way in our Christian life should pray that prayer to God. Lord, am I called to go? And at least open our hearts and minds to him in this way. So what are we going to look at today? First of all, verses 34 and 35, as we go through the text, Peter again references that God shows no no partiality. He's already spoken to Cornelius and the gathered group about this, and he begins his preaching by going through it again and referencing that the Lord God is the Lord of all and that Gentiles have access to the mercy of God, just like Jews. Next. We'll see the word God sent to the children of Israel. And that will be described. Some details about the message that Christ brought during his ministry. And then we'll see Christ's earthly ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection referenced. These are the elements of the gospel that we are called to preach when we go forth and we share the good news with others about who Jesus Christ is. 
And then we'll see Peter referencing that he has been commanded to preach this message to the people and to testify as an eyewitness at the time. Now we have the word of God as the testimony that we present to people when we share the gospel with them. And then he references the Old Testament prophets and remission of sins through Jesus Christ, making it clear to Cornelius that this is not a new message. This is a message that's been preached since the beginning. And it would have been familiar to Cornelius as a God-fearer who was likely regularly attending the reading of the word and the receiving teaching in being a God-fearer who's drawing into the synagogue regularly. So, what does the text say? Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Brothers and sisters, God shows no partiality. Peter is astounded. He needs to say it over and over again that God accepts all who come to him, even Gentiles, can be accepted by God. And this is a stunning thing, as we said, that wall in the temple between Jew and Gentile said to the Gentiles, warning, enter and risk being executed. This is an earth-shattering realization for Peter. That's why he's saying it over and over again. <clears throat> Commentary says, <clears throat> he never did nor ever will reject or refuse an honest Gentile who, like Cornelius, fears God and worships him and works righteousness, that is, is just and charitable toward all men, who lives up to the light he has, both in a sincere devotion and in a regular conversation. Whatever nation he is of, though ever so far remote from kindred to the seed of Abraham, though ever so despicable, Nay, though in ever so ill a name, that shall be no prejudice to him. God judges of men by their hearts, not by their country or their parentage. And wherever he finds an upright man, he will be found as an upright God. We need to also understand this concept of what was happening in Cornelius' life, where he's described as one who fears God and works righteousness. What is this about? I believe that sincere inner devotion to God, we should all believe this, will always overflow unto lives of righteousness. Those whose souls are enlivened and warmed by God's mercy, that's what was happening to Cornelius. His heart, his soul was being enlivened and warmed by the prospect of being brought to peace with the Most High God. And this will always cause such a soul to love God and His holy ways more and more each day and will hate their own sin and ways of lawlessness more and more each day. Brothers and sisters, our faith in Christ will bear fruit. You will grow and change if you come to know the mercy of God. And it will mark your life. This is what we see happening in the life of Cornelius. Commentary says, observe fearing God and working righteousness must go together. I'll say, it is not legalistic for me to charge you 
to obey every jot and tittle of God's law. It is not. It is gospel preaching. It is the gospel message for you to hear that you're called to obey every jot and tittle of God's law out of love for Christ. Going on to the commentary. So religion towards God is a branch of universal righteousness. Going back. For as righteousness towards men is a branch of true religion, so religion towards God is a branch of universal righteousness. Godliness and honesty must go together. And neither will excuse for the want of the other. But where these are predominant, no doubt, is to be made of acceptance with God. Not that any man since the fall can obtain the favor of God otherwise than through the mediation of Jesus Christ and by the grace of God in him. But those that have not the knowledge of Christ and therefore cannot have an explicit regard to Christ may yet receive grace from God for Christ's sake. To fear God and to work righteousness. So God can draw those who've never heard the gospel. He can work through general revelation to begin to draw them to him and to give them a general sense of righteousness and love that they, in that light, by God's grace, can begin to submit to along the way to salvation. Back to the commentary. And wherever God gives grace to do so, as he did to Cornelius, he will, through Christ, accept the work of his own hands. This is not teaching works righteousness. This is the work of God in Cornelius. And as it's working itself out, God is blessing and accepting Cornelius. Now, Peter, a Jew, has come to perceive his great error of embracing Jewish pride. And it's not given a lot of words in this this particular section of chapter 10. But I think it's very important for each of us to consider our own possible failures in light of analogy and metaphor, how we may be similar. Commentary tells us, the ceremonial law was a wall of partition between them and other nations. It is true that in it God favored that nation. That is true. And so particular persons among them were ready to infer that they were sure of God's acceptance. So that's the first error. Believing that they were guaranteed salvation because they were Jews. Next. Though they would go on to live as they desired. And that no Gentile could possibly be accepted of God. That's their second error. First error, I'm a Jew. I'm definitely accepted of God. I can live however I want. Second error, Gentiles cannot be accepted of God no matter how they live. Back to the commentary. God had said a great deal by the prophets to prevent and to rectify this mistake. But now at length he does it effectually by abolishing the covenant of peculiarity, repealing the ceremonial law, and so setting the matter at large and placing both Jew and Gentile upon the same level before God. So look, there's no reason the Jews should have believed that. But now God goes another step further by ending that covenant peculiarity of the Jews. That dispensation was destroyed. The moral law, eternal. The application of the moral law in the temple sacrifices and the ceremonial law associated with it, destroyed. 
So they were going to have a giant wake-up call in that generation to come when God would, by the Romans, destroy this system of worship. Going back to the commentary. And Peter is here made to perceive it by comparing the vision which he had had with that which Cornelius had. So he knew what he had heard, and then he heard what Cornelius saw, and God brought him to understand that he should not call anything common that God has cleansed. Back to the commentary. Now in Christ Jesus it is plain, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. <clears throat> so the only reason there was any confusion at that time, and, there's the, and why that persi confusion persists today, is because so often we don't understand that both covenants were in force at the same time until the temple was destroyed. When the new covenant was introduced by Christ and it was burgeoning and coming forth, the old covenant had yet to be destroyed. Does that make sense? Now, what about this idea of being accepted by God? We need to understand this. This is not meant to say that Cornelius has been saved from his sins, necessarily saved from his sins at this point in the story. Nor does it mean Cornelius has earned God's favor via his own human will or actions, which we've already addressed. The point is that God works in the hearts and lives of his elect all over the world, no matter where they are, regardless of their national or their ethnic background. It doesn't matter what clothes they wear, what music they listen to, the skin, the skin color, their, uh, the food they eat. Uh, this, these cultural things, these external appearances, these lineages, these parentages, these ethnic backgrounds cannot define whether or not an individual will be accepted by God. Okay? So the goodness or the badness or the mix thereof of that nation, that people, that person's background cannot determine whether they are accepted by God. Commentary says, when Peter asserts that Cornelius is accepted by God, he does not describe him as, as having earned salvation on account of his fear of God and his righteous behavior. Peter's retelling of the message which Cornelius had received from the angel clarifies that Peter did not regard the Roman centurion and his family yet to be saved, as salvation comes now only through hearing and accepting Peter's message about Christ. Israel's Messiah and Savior, a fact that Peter emphasizes at the end of his sermon. Now, you know, I think we need to be, I'll step back a little bit from where the commentary is on this. The point is that Cornelius has been accepted by God as God is working in him, and therefore his being a Gentile does not, cannot keep him from being accepted by God. And it may very well be that Cornelius had been coming to faith in God's mercy looking to these animal sacrifices, understanding that a Messiah would come, and even that Cornelius had begun to transfer his faith to this Messiah that he had yet to meet. That's a possibility. And in that sense, he could have been coming to faith like Old Testament believers. That's what Old Testament believers believed. They trusted in the coming Messiah. They trusted in Christ's gracious work. The people of the Old Covenant are saved in the same fashion of those in the New Covenant. We don't know. It'll be interesting to get to know Cornelius uh, once we get to heaven and hear him describe his conversion process. 
So verses 36 and 37, Peter turns to present the gospel. And he says, he calls it the word God sent to the children of Israel. That's how he, just, that's how he opens up his gospel message. The text says, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. So we see here that the Father in heaven, so we, we, we're Trinitarian Christians, right? Unitarianism, modalism, these are great heresies that have badly, badly harmed God's church. There are three persons in the Godhead. God the Father has a message for the globe. And he sent that message through his son. He sent his son to share this message with all the world. And thus, Jesus came to share this message. And God, the Father, initiated it. So Peter emphasizes that God has fulfilled his promise of salvation to the people of Israel through Christ, Israel's Messiah. And the term translated as message here Logos, is the good news that the peace which the Messiah was expected to bring has arrived with Jesus, who is Israel's Messiah. So he is the messenger who brings the message of peace from God the Father to a world at war with him. And this is how the message is summarized. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So, if you want to be confident more confident in evangelistic message, the evangelistic message. Remember, you're preaching peace through Jesus Christ. You're helping this other individual, these other individuals, to understand that they are at enmity with God if they're outside of Christ, and they are at war with God, and that God the Father has graciously brought a message to restore peace between them and God. In that sense, we are ambassadors we are ambassadors of Christ to bring this message of peace. Because of our sin, brothers and sisters, we've been looking at this, have we not, in the Heidelberg Catechism? And, and I hope that each one of us, by God's grace, has been brought by the Holy Spirit to a personal, individual sense of your own stench in your own sinfulness before God. And that you're His enemy. And when you look at your flesh, you realize that your flesh is nothing but God's enemy. You know, Christianity is not a flesh improvement program. Your sanctification is not a negotiation between the spirit and your flesh. Your flesh is a terrorist not to be negotiated with. Because of our sin, we are all at enmity with God. And in that enmity, we are accursed by him. In our natural state, apart from Christ, because of the first Adam, because we are, we share in that fallenness, because of our connection with the first Adam, in our natural state, we have no peace with God. We cannot have peace with God. But rather, we will remain at war with him and his ways and his people and his kingdom. And if we had it within our power, we would fly to heaven and pierce him and destroy him. This is what we want in our flesh. And this is what we want 
And this is true of us in our souls and in our bodies, all of who we are in our natural state. We are at war with God. And because we are at war with God, in our natural state of sin, our soul is in a constant storm, a great tempest of endless internal conflict, confusion, and fragmentation. So the coming judgment and destruction upon those outside of Christ in His kindness, He gives them a foretaste of it through the turmoil and the tempest and the destruction that's occurring inside their own souls. And you and I have tasted this in ourselves. Because the sanctification is seeing that fragmentation, experiencing it, being drawn away as the flesh is crucified. And God brings the shalom of heaven, the integrity, the wholeness, the consistency into our souls. Where we have a rational mind and a heart that loves what deserves to be loved and a will submitted to both reason and beauty and lives, hands and feet and mouths and lives and checkbooks that consistently express that we are at peace with God and we hate his enemies. God the Father sent this message of peace to us through Jesus of Nazareth, the second Adam. Jesus was God's great prophet. Jesus, of all the prophets, brought the message of peace with God in greater clarity than any prophet who's ever walked. And the apostles, the apostles, prophets, yes, were only prophets in the sense that they spoke what Jesus spoke. The same for every prophet that ever came, ever came before. Jesus was God's great prophet to bring this message of peace. That's what Peter's telling Cornelius. That's what you tell people when you share the gospel with them. We are at war with God. We deserve his punishment. We deserve to be cursed forever. But God sent a message to mankind in his son. And his son came, Jesus the great prophet, and preached the message from heaven of how we can be made, how can we can be reconciled and restored to peace with God. Now, next. And this is implied in the way that Peter preaches this sermon. Not only was Jesus' word of peace from God the Father, so the word that Jesus, the word, Jesus, the word, spoke the word. And it's right there. We start to see what's happening here. The messenger fulfills the message. The great prophet goes forth to be the sacrifice. And so, not only was Jesus the word, Jesus' word of peace from God the Father, but also Jesus of Nazareth was the sacrifice of peace before God the Father the messenger, and the one who would be slain. The message of peace and the source of peace. This is, this is the evangelistic message you have for people. Everything focuses back as we come to salvation to God's initiative giving us Christ and bringing us back to him. Commentary says it is God himself that proclaims peace who justly might have proclaimed the war. Let that sink in. It is God himself who says peace, who justly might have proclaimed war and brought all of his almighty power to bear on every human being that's ever existed on this earth. 
were God to send us all to hell forever, it would be nothing but an act of perfect justice. None of us deserve anything less. Back to the commentary. He lets the world of mankind know that he is willing to be at peace with them through Jesus Christ. In him he was reconciling the world to himself. Next. Another important part of the gospel. You know, what I've just shared with you a lot of times is kind of the only part of the gospel of the kingdom you might hear, at least in my experience, in the modern evangelical world. But you're not done with the gospel unless you go to this next part. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So in the context, the first message here is that Peter is emphasizing the message of peace is for Jew and Gentile alike. That's who he's talking to, Gentiles. So he's saying, hey, look, this Jesus that I'm telling you about, he's Lord, not just of me and the Jews, but of you and the Gentiles, and by extension, of the whole world. Throughout not only Israel and Rome, but throughout the entire world, and by referencing Christ as Lord of all, now get this, the fruit of peace with God is highlighted. Not only peace with God, but the fruit of peace with God is highlighted. Brothers and sisters, embracing God as our master and his commands of love as our delight will be the worldwide fruition of peace with God in Christ. This one who brought us peace is the Lord of peace. He's called the Prince of peace. Commentary. The second point that Peter emphasizes For Luke, in the context of the Caesarea episode, perhaps the crucial statement is the fact that God's salvation through Jesus is offered up to all people. Jesus, Israel's Messiah, is Lord of all. And this means in the context of both Cornelius and Peter's visions that Jesus is Lord not only of the Jewish people, but also of the Gentiles. So when you are seeking to share the gospel, you see how simple it is. Jesus Christ has been sent by the Father to bring a message of peace to a world at war with him, including you inside your soul. And that Jesus is the one who is the sacrifice. And we're going to get to this later because he mentions the remission of sins. Jesus himself, the messenger, is the sacrifice. And he is your Lord. He brings you peace. And the fruit of that peace is that you acknowledge him as your master and you obey him. And it shows up in your life. Now, Peter does something that is helpful. He knows, he tells Cornelius, you know of this word. You've heard it before. So when you're sharing the gospel, when you're being an evangelist, you'll want to pick up on where people are, what they know, what they don't know. And you can, it's a helpful thing to reference what the knowledge that folks bring with them when you're serving and working as an evangelist. But it's okay to repeat things. Okay? And that's what he does. He repeats it. Peter presumes that Cornelius and his friends have basic information about what happened during Jesus' public ministry. A Jewish preacher who performs miracles and draws large crowds would certainly not have escaped the notice of the Roman governor and his troops stationed in Caesarea, only about 62 miles away from Capernaum. So, God works in the world. He does mighty things in the world today. And the people you're talking to may be aware of God's work. And you can bring those things in as you speak with them. 
We also see Peter noting the details, the geographic extent and beginning of the message. The message has already spread throughout all Judea, beginning at Galilee after John the Baptist's message of repentance had been preached. So he's bringing Cornelius into the momentum of what God is doing. You can do that in your evangelism as well. And it goes all the way back to the beginning, alluding to John the Baptist's water baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, his public ministry. So when you preach the gospel, you can take folks back to the public ministry of Jesus Christ and then go into the important things about Jesus on the earth. His life, his death, and his resurrection. His life and his death and his resurrection, that's what you tell people about. First of all, let me read the text. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So when you're sharing the gospel, you speak of the life of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. And this I've termed in the sermon notes as the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Not perfectly accurate because I think his work on the cross is also part of his ministry. But his ministry before he went to the cross. First of all, Peter emphasizes that God the Father not only sent Jesus, but he anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And to a God-fearing Gentile coming at this through Judaism, he would have heard of Messiah. He would have connected with the concept of the Father anointing a Messiah. And we know what happened in Luke chapter 3. We've seen this. We've looked at this. We've read about this. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. This is John baptizing. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. So the reference to John's baptism and now mentioning the anointing that God did shows us, takes us back to this moment when Jesus' public ministry begins. The commentary says Jesus is God's anointed, that is the Messiah who has been set apart, commissioned, and empowered by God to usher in the fulfillment of the promises concerning the coming of God and of his rule, bringing comprehensive peace and salvation to Israel and to the world. The definite subject of this clause emphasizes that the key element in Jesus' ministry was the Father, God the Father's initiative. This reality is reemphasized with the phrase later that we'll see, because God was with him. That's the phrase, because God was with him. That comes at the end of this sentence. So when we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we are Trinitarian. We speak of the Father sending Jesus. We speak of the Father anointing Jesus. We speak of the Father anointing Jesus with his Holy Spirit. This is a text, if you want to argue the Trinitarian biblical worldview, you can go to this text. And when we preach the gospel, we present this glorious reality of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed, that milk that was likely the doctrinal focus when folks were being catechized into the faith back in the early days of Christianity is a Trinitarian 
word. This is introductory Christianity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Jesus tells us also during his earthly ministry that his anointing is by God. So Peter's not making this up. And that he is anointed not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 4, quoting the Old Testament about himself. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So here's Jesus back in his hometown. He goes into his hometown synagogue and they hand him the scroll and he opens it up. He finds this place and he reads it. And this is what he says about it after he reads it. I'm going to go ahead and go to verse 21. He tells them after he reads it, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, here's what, so here Jesus reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So when we preach the gospel, you see that the Father has sent the Son to bring the message. Sent the Son to be the sacrifice. And sent the Son and anointed him and poured out his Holy Spirit upon him. The Father cannot be left out of our evangelistic methods. <clears throat> Often he is. And this occurred. Jesus' ability to carry this out in the earth was because God was with him. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, with him in his ministry. <clears throat> Next. Jesus' proclamation of peace was accompanied by actions which were an expression of his message of the arrival of the kingdom of God. So Jesus didn't just bring a message. The text tells us that he also went about doing good and healing all that had been oppressed by Satan. So he is an example, like what we've already talked about. Cornelius feared God and worked righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ giving us this example as well. The verb translated as doing good means to render exceptional, exceptional service, especially to a community. To do good, to benefit people. This is from the commentary. The healings that Jesus performed demonstrated the reality of God's effective power, the magnitude of which is dramatically evident in the expulsion of demons, signifying Jesus' victory over the devil. Jesus, empowered by God through his spirit, effected the liberation of people from the realm of satanic affliction into the sphere of salvation. When you preach the gospel and you tell people the message of peace from God the Father, the war that is occurring needs to be defined. And that there are invisible demonic efforts seeking to destroy this person that you're talking to. Fighting against God, but that Jesus is greater. And Peter presents himself as evidence of Christ's earthly ministry. He heard the message of peace. He saw the power of God bringing all of the great victory of heaven onto earth. And he's a witness to these things. We have the word of God. We present the word of God to people as the witness to these things. 
Christ had commanded his followers that saw him, that were with him, to not only preach the gospel of the kingdom, but also to testify as eyewitnesses to the truth of their message. We hold out, what evidence do we hold out to people? The word of God. The word of God. We stand on the word of God. The word of God is a more sure testimony than their eyewitness testimonies. Commentary says, the role of apostles as eyewitnesses is focused here on Christ's earthly ministry of proclamation and healing there in the country of the Jews. That's in Galilee and Judea. As well as in Jerusalem. The apostles witnessed his proclamation of the message of the arrival of God's kingdom before small and large crowds. They saw the miracles of healing and exorcism. They were present when Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. They saw it all. They accompanied Jesus during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They witnessed his prophetic demonstration in the temple. Now, other than the Apostle John, right, they, weren't, they can't necessarily say that they were, they were all witnesses of his death on the cross, can they? They, they ran away. Perhaps that's why Peter doesn't reference all these witnesses in this next brief statement. But he does talk about Christ's death on the cross. And we can't complete evangelism unless this is also included. But do you notice his life, his ministry, his works that testified to his greatness? This is also a part of the gospel. Discussing Christ and what he did while he lived on this earth, before he went to the cross. Peter says the Jews killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. So he makes this very brief statement of how Jesus was killed. It's all he says. It's all Luke relates to us. Peter places blame upon the Jews and doesn't make any direct mention of the Romans as he's preaching the gospel to this Roman centurion. Commentary says, Luke's report of Peter's reference to Christ's death and resurrection is very brief. It's only 14 words. As regarding his death, Peter mentions the people who are responsible for Jesus' execution, and he doesn't point to the Romans. He says it's the Jews and the method by which Jesus was crucified, and he does reference crucifixion. The expression hanging him on a cross alludes to Deuteronomy 21 and thus to God's curse on executed people who are hanged on a tree the significance of which Peter may have explained to Cornelius at some other time. So the way that Jesus was cursed, the way that he was killed, demonstrates that he was accursed by God. So Jesus is not only God's messenger of peace to the world, he is that. But also Jesus made satisfaction for God's justice for his people throughout the world. Jesus Christ is the one who made this satisfaction. Christ's death upon the cross for his people is the means the only means by which God removes the curse and condemnation upon his people, thus removing the necessary enmity on God's part as a good, just judge. God is required to be the adversary of humanity. Now, we in our flesh, we will always be his adversary, but apart from Christ. He must make us and keep us as his enemies. But Jesus Christ was sent to remove that enmity, to make satisfaction for the Father so that we could be his friends. Removed from that place 
of being his enemies. And so the remission of sins that we're going to see later mentioned by Peter can only come via Christ's substitutionary death. And so when you share the gospel with people and you speak of Christ's death upon the cross, some reference needs to be made to his precious blood being the only way that our sins can be washed away. The only way that we can find peace with God. This message of peace comes only through Christ's death upon the cross. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 17 says this about Jesus, that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Brothers and sisters, I I hope that you will, with me, take a moment to ponder the torment that Jesus Christ endured on the cross. That we can worship him together at this moment by pondering the torment that he experienced. Do you know that torture is used by governments who don't trust Christ, by individuals who don't trust Christ, inflicting torment on another human being to get them to do something, to get them to share information. You've heard of this, correct? You know this happens. And when you read the accounts of people who've been tortured in this fashion, fingernails, pulled out, uh, knives cutting them open and gripping nerves and sending electric shocks directly into their nerves. Why am I giving you these details? I want you to connect with the suffering that Jesus Christ had to endure. The people who are tortured long to die. They long to die. They hope to die. They wish to die. But their tormentors do not give them death. So when we speak of Christ's human nature, apart from God's divine nature, he could not have sustained the burden of God's infinite and eternal wrath. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ endured torment upon torment upon torment until every last drop of justice that we deserve as his elect was spent on him. And then he, then he, then he could die. Then he could die. Then he could say, it is finished. So it is worthwhile to meditate upon the great work of our captain. Praise be to him. Praise be to him. So, Jesus Christ, Peter says, the Jews killed him by hanging him on a tree. Worth meditating upon. Because when you consider Jesus as your judge... Has your judge suffered for you and paid the price for you? I'm going to ask you to consider today the day of judgment for the little people too. 
For the little people too, for the big people, the old people, consider the day of judgment. This text calls us to consider the day of judgment that is coming for you, for me. Have we, have we had our sins washed away through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross? So, he suffered, and Peter tells them that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. Verses 40 and 41. It's such a beautiful thing the way that Peter says it. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So the point of emphasis here is Christ's resurrection from the dead as he's speaking to Cornelius. Christ's resurrection from the dead, brothers and sisters, is an essential part of preaching the gospel of peace. In order for Christ to restore life to us, he had to receive. He was the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. And we, we have life because of him. And the Father who sent Christ to preach peace and to accomplish peace on the cross is fully vindicated. Both his message and the satisfaction supplied through his death are fully vindicated because he's raised up from the dead. The Father who sent him, who gave him the message, gave him the mission, who poured out Eternal hell upon his soul and body vindicated him and brought him back from the dead. This is his beloved son. The commentary says, the power by which he arose is incontestably divine. It's from God. Him God raised up. God raised up the third day. Which not only disproved all the calumnies and accusations that Christ was laid under by men, you know, claiming that his body was stolen, these types of lies going on with the commentary, but effectually proved God's acceptance of the satisfaction he made for the sin of man by the blood of his cross. He did not break prison, but had a legal discharge. God raised him up. And I don't think you can find anywhere in the Old Covenant writings where any of those animals who were sacrificed and burned were ever resurrected from the dead. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, was raised up. And I don't care what you face. I don't care what you're going through in your life. You shouldn't ever be discouraged. We are. We are because our faith is too small and our eyes are not on Him. But when He, in His kindness, draws us back to Him and puts our eyes back on Him, oh, the mountains of life, they're little things that get tossed into the sea of His glorious kingdom. And we rise up. We're different people. We're encouraged. We're encouragers. We can help instead of harm. Now, God in his plan chose to give witnesses to this. Peter references the evidence. He references the evidence. I saw him. Others saw him whom God chose. And we looked at that at the beginning when we first started studying Acts. All those moments where Jesus was witnessed alive after he came back from the dead. We looked at that. Peter references this. So he establishes this key fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
by referencing the public demonstration of Christ's resurrection before many chosen witnesses. This is not hearsay. Peter himself was an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if anyone wants to challenge you about the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you pick up your Bible and you show them from your Bible what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. That is equivalent, in fact, even more equivalent than Peter pointing to his own eyewitness testimony. There is nothing more valid as evidence in this life than the Word of God. Even Peter himself says the Word of God is a more sure testimony than eyewitnesses to Christ himself. Trust the Word of God in your evangelism. Trust the Word of God in your evangelism. So when Peter is referencing witnesses, you are referencing your Bible. You're not going to history books. You're not going to scholars. You're not going to commentaries. You, you go directly to the source that is the surest source of all, the Word of God. Read them. Say, well, here's what it says in the Bible. And just keep telling it to them from the Bible. And trust God's power in His Word. Evangelism is simple. Tell the story of Jesus using the Bible. Now, he also goes on to give us this specific evidence, and it's, it's very beautiful, and it's also with significant theological importance. They ate and drank with Jesus after he rose from the dead. They had a meal with their Lord after he rose from the dead. At least, at least one, <clears throat> but we know there were more than one. Peter says they ate and drank with Jesus after he came back from the dead. Commentary says the encounters of witnesses who saw Christ after his return from the dead involved meals at which they ate with him and drank with him. The reference to meals that Peter and others shared with Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection refers to the Emmaus Road, Luke chapter 24, 30 through 35, and also the 11 disciples and their companions. That's the next section there in Luke 24. And similar events reported to us in Acts chapter 1. We saw also what happened there by the Sea of Tiberias when they came and ate some fish there on the shore with Jesus and underlines the physical nature of Jesus' resurrection. So it's beautiful. It's tender. He could have just shown up and um, demonstrated his resurrection in some other way. He ate with them. He ate with them. This is one of the reasons why we love to have the Lord's Supper because we're eating with Jesus. We're celebrating the living Jesus who has come back from the dead and heaven's table Represented here, we share with him when we have the Lord's table. And this is why we love to have the Lord's Supper every week. Is it required? Is it a law? No. There's nothing in the scriptures that require the Lord's Supper has to occur every week. But why do we do it every week? Because we rejoice to eat with the living Christ. And to feed upon the living Christ. So, Jesus also was raised in a true body. Okay, it's called a spiritual body, but it's not just a spirit. And so this destroys all ideas of Gnosticism. Destroys all ideas that Jesus was just a spirit and that he didn't really come back to life in a physical form. And it's called a spiritual body. As you've heard me say before, it's at least what we have now plus more. That's the spiritual body. Okay? It's at least what Adam and Eve had in the garden. At least. 
that we're being restored to when we're raised from the dead on the final day. So, don't believe Gnosticism. All right, so Jesus, this, Peter ends this uh, with a few statements about Christ preaching to the people and regarding the source of the gospel going all the way back to the Old Testament and the remission of sins. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus commanded them to preach, and we are under the same commandment. So this is an important part of you understanding your life in this world. The reason that you still have breath. The reason that you've not been taken off this world yet. You have this mission given to you as well. I was talking to my kids last night at the table, and I asked them all to raise their hands. I said, do you commit to share this message of the gospel with your children and with your children's children? And if I recall correctly, they all raised their hands. Right? And so, you know, your evangelism is commanded. It's not an option. So that will help you, I think, motivate you to want to understand the message better and, and be confident in the simplicity of the message and that it, you will be empowered by the Spirit when you speak up and you tell the message. And you are commanded to do so. And you are a witness to what God has done in your own life. You can testify. You share your testimony. The word of your testimony is what God has done in your life. But the testimony is the word of God. That is the evidence that you bring to people when you share the gospel with them. And he goes on <clears throat> to add, to complement the concept of Jesus being Lord of all by calling him judge of the living and the dead. And he was ordained to this by the Father. Over and over again, we see the Father's initiative. Jesus has been ordained by God to be judge of all. So when you're preaching the gospel, if you exclude the concept of being at war with God, and you exclude the idea that this war is going to come to an end, and when it comes to end, you're going to be judged as his enemy or as his friend, if you leave that out, you have not completed the message. Now, of course, Peter doesn't go as far as I just went. He just says, Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. And so you can leave things to people's minds to fill in the gap. But you've got to bring up the concept of eternal judgment and Christ as the judge if you're going to complete the gospel message. By virtue of his perfect life, his mighty love on the cross, enduring what we've already discussed, and his resurrection, thus everything being vindicated, and then his ascension to God's right hand of power, which is being alluded to here by Peter when he calls him the judge of all. Right? So we have a throne of grace, but there's also a throne of judgment at God's right hand. Maybe it's the same throne. For us, it's a throne of grace. For others, it's a throne of judgment. That's probably how it is. So Jesus will decide who is still at war with him on that final day. And he will decide who has been brought to peace with him. The Lamb of God is the judge of all. The messenger is the sacrifice. The sacrifice was sufficient. Christ's death vindicated in his resurrection 
and raised up to be the judge to determine who has been brought into God's peace and who is still under his curse. So I want us to note, judgment is another essential aspect of the message that we're commanded to preach. Not popular in the world today, is it, brothers and sisters? Not, not, oh, you don't want to scare people into the kingdom. You better be scared. You, 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 there's nothing you should be more scared of. If you've ever, think of the moment in your life when you've been the most frightened, the most terrified out of your mind, and, and that's like a day of laughter and joy compared to what is coming upon those who find themselves under God's wrath in that day. And you are a friend to warn someone of, of this coming wrath. You're a friend. And you are presenting the message the way that God calls you to. It's not popular today. We don't want to make Christ into Lord and Judge. We just want Him to be our cuddly Savior. Now, we can run into His arms. Amen. With hearts full of reverence and astounded in awe with His majesty. This is never popular to our fallen flesh. Probably don't like doing it right now. Yet to those who are being saved, who who have faith, who've been filled with the Spirit, when we hear this message of judgment, what does it do for us? Once again, we rejoice. We, when we again ponder the judgment from which we've been saved, we rejoice that we've been brought to that knowledge. We rejoice that we've been brought to Christ's mercy at the cross. And we gain greater appreciation and gratitude as we ponder Christ as judge. It's not just a concept for those outside of Christ. Think about how this would have been looming for Cornelius as he was considering what he was learning in Judaism and the others in his home probably who were seeking God along with him. The threat of judgment will always make the sensible soul seek mercy from God. When the Lord pierces someone with the prospect of his judgment and they're not able to shirk it off have another drink, or watch another game, but it gets in there like a splinter in their mind. That soul, under the work of God, will be brought to a sensible awareness to seek relief. Have you been brought to that point in your life? To seek relief from God's judgment? Has that occurred in your soul? I'm not talking about academic understanding. I'm talking about where you confess your sin to God and cry out to Him for mercy and trust in Christ's death for you. Rejoicing that you've been freed from His judgment. Commentary says, God is empowered to prescribe the terms of salvation, that rule by which we must be judged, to give laws both to quick and dead, both to Jew and Gentile, and He is appointed to determine the everlasting condition. This is Jesus. This is about Jesus. He is appointed to determine the everlasting condition of all the children of men at that great day, of those that shall be found alive and of those that shall be raised from the dead. And I believe that this will be one general resurrection. You and I are going to be there, brothers and sisters. We'll probably remember some of this preaching together on that day when we stand before the king and we see him sorting the sheep from the goats. That great general resurrection is coming. That day is coming. And Jesus is the one who will be the judge on that day. 
of those that shall be found alive and those that shall be raised from the dead. He hath assured us of this in that he hath raised him from the dead. So that it is the great concern of every one of us. It is the greatest concern. It is your life's greatest concern in the belief of this to seek his favor and to make him our friend. That great white throne judgment. Maybe you and your family could take some time to to read that in Revelation today. If you don't mind your pastor giving you a little bit of Sunday homework. And read about it. Look closely at that judgment. And consider where you will be standing. Next. Old Testament prophets. He references and the remission of sins through Jesus Christ. Remember, they were commanded to preach repentance and remission of sins to all nations in Christ. What Peter is saying to Cornelius is very similar, essentially identical to what the Heidelberg Catechism, question 19, teaches us. How do you know that Jesus is the mediator who is in one person both very God and a real and righteous man? How do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten son. So when we share the gospel, we want to know God's word well enough if asked to be able to reference some of these Old Testament texts. But it's perfectly acceptable, like Peter does, to make a sweeping reference to the Old Covenant writings, starting in Genesis, going through the patriarchs, going through all the prophets, speaking of the Messiah to come, who would be this Jesus? It's okay for you to do that. And it's good for you to do that because you don't want to inadvertently say to someone that the Old Covenant writings are unimportant which is a prevalent heresy in today's world. He ends off with the remission of sins. And, you know, right after this, and you get the sense Peter didn't get a chance to finish his sermon. The Father in heaven, Christ, have determined that they've heard enough. Because something happens at this moment, and you have to believe it's combined with their, their faith, At this moment, for the first time, they come to understand that their sins are washed away by Jesus Christ. And the Father in heaven has brought that faith into their mind and in their hearts through the preaching of Peter, and they believe it. And they not only understand that their sins are washed away, but they have the object of their worship in their mind. Not some vague figure to come. The man himself, Jesus Christ, the one who came and preached, the one who suffered on the cross, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who ascended as and made judge and is their Lord. He is alive. And their sins have been washed away. Down comes the Spirit on that moment. And we're going to look at that next week and see all that God does in the lives of those who come to trust in Christ as their Savior, 
and as their Lord. And who know what that means. If they were at war with God, they had no chance of being at peace with him. They would have remained his enemies forever, under his curse, deserving to sustain the burden of God's wrath in their own soul, undying forever. Understanding that Jesus took that for them on the cross in his great service to his Father and love for his church. Understanding that the Father said, this is my beloved Son as he raised him from the dead. Vindicating him and raising him up to heaven after he was with his disciples during those 40 days before he ascended to heaven. People who understand this, things happen in their lives. People who are given this faith, the Spirit attends things happen. They change. They're sanctified. They're filled with the zeal and the knowledge of Christ in their hearts and minds. And we're going to see that next week. I'm not going to ask you any questions to know, to love and obey God by way of application today at the end of this one hour and 15 minute sermon. But instead... I'll ask you to take some time to consider these things. And especially in regards to the overall focus of being a good and faithful evangelist like Peter. And being thankful for the gospel like Cornelius and the people there with him. And bearing fruit of being one who is at peace with God. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you, how we praise you. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you. Forgive us, Lord, for not having grateful hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for taking for granted the great treasure of knowing that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are our Savior and our Lord and our Judge and that you have delivered us from your wrath and brought us into your kingdom of peace and are working in us, crucifying our flesh and causing us to love your ways and giving, giving us lives that shall ring through all the halls of eternity forever because our acts of faith will be remembered forever and ever. Bless us, O oh God, to know before whom we live that we would be those who seek to please you, whose lives are lived before your face. Oh, deliver us from being those who are man-pleasers, those who care in ways that we shouldn't about what others think of us. Oh God, grant to us hearts filled with a preoccupation of your favor, of your favor over us. In Jesus' name.